Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hey, 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 how are you doing? Um, funny thing, I've had two nights out, last two nights, and I've been a bit silly and stayed out a bit late both nights, so I've had not very much sleep the last couple of nights, but I've still been getting up in the morning and, you know, doing all the normal stuff. And then my three-year-old, Mickey, he's very, very clingy. He's lovely, he's lots of fun, but he will not leave me alone for like even a minute. So just now I've come out of the house to go and pick up my six-year-old from a play date and um, I had to like run away from Mickey a little bit because I didn't have the right car seat in the car. So I just said to Richard, oh, I'm just going to go and get Mickey on, uh, Jesse on my own. And so poor Mickey, he was distraught, but I ran out the door. And then, wow, I feel like I can actually still hear him crying. I might, not even in the house. Anyway, um... And then I got in the car and then it was all quiet and calm and the journey to go and pick up Jessie is only 10 minutes and I thought, I just want to sit here in the quiet, calm car for a second because I'm tired. Um, I genuinely feel like I can still hear him crying. I can. I can hear him like absolutely screaming. What is going on? I think I might have to go and check actually. I think, I think he's like screaming his head off. Anyway, um, the car is nice and quiet. And yeah, I can tell you a little bit about what's been going on. I'm back. 
uh, yeah, he was absolutely sobbing. And I don't know why, but Richard had the front door open and they were just sort of sat outside. That was quite strange. Anyway, uh, you're probably wondering what my late nights were about. Uh, last night, I did a gig. Um, really fun. It was a um, pub in the park and it was in Wimbledon and it was a sunny day and everybody was happy. And then after that, I went to join my brother and his girlfriend, Alina, for her birthday drinks. And we got there pretty much as the pub closed. So we ended up going back to one of her friend's houses. And I think I went to sleep at about three, which is way too late. And then the night before, I hear you ask, what did I do then? I went to see ABBA. I went to see the new ABBA show, ABBA Voyage. It was really good. I feel like it took me all of yesterday to sort of work out what it was I'd seen. It's somewhere between a gig and a theme park ride and a spectacle and looking into the future and looking back at the past. Um, the avatars, avatars as they call them, are incredible, really amazing tech. The whole arena is beautiful. It's all purpose-built, the Abbott Arena, and it's filled with billions of amazing lights and things that go up and down and lasers that go around you and then they've got the amazing screen where Abba, the figures on the stage really do look like real people you would swear to god that Abba were really standing there i mean the bit that's um a little weird is when you first see the close-ups of the avatar's faces on the big screens and you know there are parts about human face that just can't quite be replicated so the eyes and something to do with the way the mouth moves but what's really funny is after a couple of songs you just don't mind anymore you just got into what it is they've been very clever the people who've put it together have been incredibly clever and it's got that lovely feel of when you go and see something where all they want is to wow you it's a nice feeling like a privilege like they've thought very much about what your experience would be of watching the show. So I don't think there's a bad seat in the house. And I want to go again. <laughs> um, and I've also done quite a few podcast chats this week, including my amazing guest who came round to see me this week. Um, her name is Stacey Heal. We had never met before in real life. I've been following her for a while on Instagram. And I just had that feeling where even before she rang the doorbell, I just knew we'd get along just fine. I could see we had a lot of common ground and maybe a similar perspective on life um, in terms of, you know, the way she phrases things. But um, but for Stacey, she's, yeah, she, there are so many milestones of what's been going on in her life and my life that are very similar. Like, you know, our influences, our age, um, all our reference points were the same. We both married boys in bands only the man she married greg who is the lead singer of the delays the man that they have um they've got two little girls um her boy in a band was diagnosed with terminal cancer and it's that heartbreaking thing of just i don't know just the, the, the bad bad stuff that can happen in people's lives and so Stacy, very sadly, became a widow September last year. And she's been writing so brilliantly about grief on Instagram. And I suppose it resonated with me because 
not least because we're peers, but because also my mum also writes about grief on her Instagram. And I think she articulates things very well as well. So I felt like there was a sort of kindred spirit, although obviously, you know, so much younger and with raising a young family. So I at first thought maybe, is it appropriate to ask Stacey to talk to me? Like maybe that's not a conversation she wants to be having with me. But then I saw that she'd been doing the same thing my mum was doing actually, which is, you know, having that conversation with other people. And I just believe that speaking to people about things you're going through can be incredibly helpful if that's something that you find helpful for you. But it's definitely helpful for other people to hear. So I asked Stacey if she'd like to talk to me and she said yes and came around for lunch and we had a chat and it was amazing and moving and special and thought-provoking and all the things I knew it would be. So I'm going to share it with you and um, yeah, it was really one of those things that's made me definitely, um, you know, when you have a, a conversation and it kind of uh, puts the rest of the, the days in the week under a different gauze. I feel like that really, like, I don't know, I suppose forks in the road. I feel like, you know, in a, another life roles could have been reversed maybe. But anyway, I really loved meeting Stacey and I know uh, if you don't already follow her, you're going to love her too. And um, yeah, it does get a little emotional, this one. Oh, and there is some swearing too. And I'll see you on the other side. All right, see you in a bit. Well, where should we start, Stacey? First of all, thank you. It's really nice for you to come over. Oh, and, thank um, you for having me. <laughs> I was saying to you before we start recording, I feel a bit like I know you already, which I think is partly because I've been following you for a while on Instagram and you're a really good communicator. I love your writing. Thank you. Um, so you've already got that, but I think also our lives have probably yeah. sort of some little mirror. We're not we're quite similar ages. We've had yes. some similar sort of little, uh, you know, moments in our lives, some mutual friends. You know, yeah. I think there's quite a lot of, of uh, yeah, times when it's it been in synchronicity, really. So. Yeah, I feel like I know you as well. <laughs> it, yeah, it's confusing to feel like we've just, this is the first time we're meeting each other. Yeah, exactly. But nice feeling. Um, yeah. And so I suppose I'll start with um, a very British question. Of how are you? <laughs> oh, God, that's yeah. a really, yeah. that's a really British question. Um, when people generally ask me how I am, I, I always seem to say up and down because... Your instinct, isn't it? The British answer to the British question is fine. Yeah. And it's quite obvious that I'm not fine. <laughs> well, um, it's not obvious, but Yeah. Well, uh yeah. It's I, more I, I don't think yeah, I don't think I don't think people will expect me to say fine. So I say up and down. And it's really true. I am up and down. There's some days where I'm absolutely fine. In fact, I feel really motivated and happy and good, which again might sound weird but it's true. And other days are, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, of course oh, you are. bleak as fuck. Like really fucking hard. Like monumentally hard where you feel like the other, your entire world has changed. And you know, when you have a dream and you're kind of in, you're in your own house, but you're looking around, but everything's different when you're talking to your loved ones and they're them, but they're also someone else. Mm. It, being in grief like this is is very much like that. You're in your own life. You're kind of the main character in your own film, but everything's slightly shifted. So you're looking yeah. around going, oh, 
Mm, I don't, this is kind of, it puts you on edge a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and I think actually that sort of dreamlike quality of the early stages of grief, it's really strange because your brain starts doing all these crazy flips in chronology and bringing things back to you. And I mean, we were talking a bit before we started recording, I was saying, I, you know, just to establish it, I know the grief I felt about losing my stepdad is nothing like losing your partner. But I do know that when John died, my stepdad, which is coming up to two years now, I felt like in a way I'd like, okay, good, that's the cancer gone. And then I kept thinking he was just going to come back now that the cancer had yeah. done what it was going to do. I don't know if that's something that was just unique to my way of thinking. Yeah, I think if... It's weird. It's, it's a, like a terminal illness almost feels a little bit like a pregnancy in that you're kind of like, there's a day coming in the future. Obviously with pregnancy, you kind of know when it is, but you know that there's you're kind of building up, you're ramping up to stuff and there's changes physically and there's emotional stuff going on. And then that day happens. And I found that it's like the day afterwards is like the biggest shock. Like I remember when I had my eldest daughter, Dali, and being there afterwards and thinking, what now? Like, what what happens now? That's when the pregnancy books finish. Yeah, and everyone's just told me about getting to this bit. Now <laughs> mm. I need to know. And that's the hard bit because like you've just basically run a, mar- run a marathon mm. giving birth and now you're like, oh, now is the hard bit. And yeah. I kind of feel like that about grief that we were all psychologically gearing up to this day when Greg would die which he did and then we were left with the the After. aftermath and the aftermath is weirdly hard is it harder I don't know but it, you're kind of then into this world where you're kind of just set adrift yeah. and then it's like you're having to make it up on your own which is a lot like motherhood and it does remind me of motherhood of like this the weirdness that goes in your brain you feel like the chemistry's changed in your brain yeah it's very very similar yeah that's a good way of putting it like the, the neurons are actually remapping and rewiring and yeah to sort of... and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've read there is re- actual research that shows that the chemistry in your brain changes during um grief because and it, it taps into things like PTSD things how things trauma mm. things actually change in your brain yeah, that, I would imagine that's true. That yeah. makes sense, wouldn't it? And yeah. So basically with the podcast I've been doing, I mainly talk to women about sort of like being working women whilst they're also raising a family and and all that that entails. But obviously with you, I know you were working before Greg was diagnosed, but the the big thing you're not having to handle, what you've been handling for the last five years is is, as you were saying, this path of terminal illness with your your children's dad and then this bit now so going back what was going on in your life at that time when you first became a mum what was going on then when I first became a mum was probably the happiest I think I've ever been um we got pregnant quite quickly because and again birth linking to death we had two deaths that happened very very quickly so Greg's granddad died and one of my best friends died quite um, quite tragically where he he had um, a blood clot. He, he tripped down some stairs. There was a blood clot in his ankle that the doctors didn't pick up on and it travelled up to his heart and he had a heart attack at 32. 
So those two deaths happened really, really quickly. And it was one of those things where we were kind of umming and ahhing about when to start a family. And those two things were like, right, that's it. We've got to do it now. Just that kind of everything is now feeling. Just the instinct, just like, what are we waiting for? So it was this, this life that was born out of death. And we were we were just in such a good space really really good space and then after Dali was born um that's when Greg started to slowly become more unwell but obviously we didn't we didn't know what was wrong with him at the time and then we got pregnant quite quickly with our second daughter Bay and that's kind of when everything became really really difficult Greg became way more ill after she was born, I got really bad postnatal depression. I think quite circumstantial because Bay had really bad colic and she cried for five months solid, like really five months solid. I had this husband, well, partner at that time, that um, was just increasingly really, really unwell all the time. So sort of, sort of tummy things and... Yeah, just like digestive issues, pain, really, really severe pain. Nobody could tell him what it was. And I was going absolutely bananas because of Bay and I'd had so many bleak moments. I mean, when I think about that time, it was so bleak. And... It's very lonely as well because if you're, yeah. you know, this crying baby and feeling low and then Gregory's struggling as well that's it was such a sharp contrast from a couple of years earlier with Dali where it just felt so hopeful it Mm. was like the beginning of our even though we've been together a long time before that it was like the beginning of our family and it was so hopeful and then things just changed so quickly and then I was due to go back to my job. I was on maternity leave and I was due to go back um, to the university I worked at. I was a fashion academic and I was due to go back and then Greg was taken to A&E and he was diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer. So I remember being sat at the end of his bed um, in A&E thinking, okay, I've got to somehow go back to work full time as a as a course leader so i ran a i ran a fashion degree course so i've got to do that i've got to um this was on bay's first birthday as well um i've got to look after two children who are under 3 and look after someone who's got cancer and i was thinking okay i'll do it like you say like, thinking it but i presumably there's it's kind of coming in as a kind of shock just well I was brain trying to organize thoughts yeah I was just thinking right okay this is what I've got to do now this is what I've got to do I was thinking about our mortgage thinking I need to pay the bills I'm going you know we need a house we need a house (laughs) we need to live somewhere so yeah uh that but it was that thing that got into me of like that you know the I've been programmed to think I could do it all of course I can work full time of course I can still look after children one who I'm still breastfeeding. Oh, and look after a dying husband at the same time. And um, obviously, <clears throat> I couldn't do that. No, no. I mean... <sighs> and I had to... Um, I I made the decision. So my work were really lovely. They They supported me and gave me paid time off, which was incredible. But as time was going on, I realised that really, it was really 
it's just not tenable to do never, that. Yeah, and I never and I never went back, went back. And I took voluntary redundancy in the end. And I and I've never I've never regretted that because I knew that I needed to be at home with Greg. I wanted to be involved with all of his treatment and his care, and I wanted to be at all the appointments. But and I also just wanted that time with him. Yeah. Because I just thought I will never get this again. This is it. Um. So yeah, I I never. I've never felt bad about leaving. Oh, no, no. I think with those things all, this is like a new, new. you've just turned, you know, turned into a, like a completely blank page, you know, do whatever feels right for you. And I don't think it's about, you know, anything else other than what works for your family at that point. But I'm just, I suppose when someone's received a diagnosis like that, there's suddenly a whole new fleet of people that become part of your lives, consultants and people you now realise you're going to see them regularly and there's going to be a diary of treatment. Yeah. But then there's lots of time when that's not what the days are about and it's you with your small children. And how how did you go about your day, like in terms of just having that sort of like a normality of young children life because that's that's a very busy life isn't it when they're small it is and and actually there's nothing like young children to bring you back (laughs) back to reality so actually even though there was this big thing in our house having really really tiny kids helped to take our mind off it I think maybe if they'd been teenagers it would have been a lot harder because they'd have actually known what was going on but to have an like a baby and then a toddler yeah um who, who didn't who, who didn't know what was going on at that point. So was Dali like three? Dali was just, he just turned, th- just about to turn three. Um, so you, in in many ways, they saved me because they got me up every morning. I still, you know, at the time, goodness, I was on my knees in terms of like energy and emotions. But, you know, you still had to get up, do yeah. the breakfasts. I still had, to, I was still waking up at bay to do night feeds at that point still had to have bath time, still had to play, still had to get um, play dates in the diary because they needed to see other kids. So that was actually really helpful. And I, I feel that now actually about, about the grief of after Greg died, that if, I, if we hadn't have had children, if this had all happened before, because he, he put, to be honest, he probably had cancer before we had Dali. So if we had found out then and we'd never had children what would that be like for me now and my girls really give me I mean it's bloody hard work I mean trying to grieve with grieving children is and do normal day-to-day life stuff as well is like the test of a lifetime but they get me out of bed they keep me they keep me going they keep that momentum that family life yeah has and you can't get too you can't get too introverted because there's a rhythm to that and that rhythm keeps you sane i think yeah and no, I, I can understand that and i think i imagine you know you and greg get this news which is cataclysmic and you start to try and get your head around what that all means and the ramifications but for the girls that's just one day following another day following another day and they don't have they don't have any awareness of what's changed with you guys in that moment. They're just... Yeah, still... they they really didn't because they were so, so tiny. Little, yeah. It just became a normal thing. Um, Greg had a pick line, which is like a permanent uh, line in his arm. 
to have treatment. So they just knew of like, oh, you've got to be careful with daddy's arm. And he often had a pump, a chemo pump that he'd come home with that they would, um, I've got a picture of Dali actually sat next to him watching TV and he, she's holding it for him because she wanted to be helpful. Um, yeah, they just got used to, you know, certain times of the day, daddy's having a nap. And that was normal. That was literally their entire life. And I, I feel, I do feel sad about that, that that's their only, that will be their only memory is of their dad, of the, because he was so much more than that. He was yeah. so big and creative and energetic that for them to just know that part of him in that tiny part of their life is, um, yeah. But they won't only know that though, because they, they, he's, there are things out there that actually exist that people, anyone can see, like all his amazing artwork and his music. Yeah. Yeah. That is out in the world. They can uncover, there's loads of it actually. They can yeah. they surround themselves <laughs> there with is. them if they want. There is. It's really interesting actually having someone, someone who's died who, who is in the public eye and has that stuff because other people can watch the music videos and listen to the albums and look at the artwork. And that's a very certain side of Greg. Yeah. But I... I wish there was more of what they knew, which was their dad, who was a different person to to the people that everyone knew, that he was, like, so... Like, as a dad, he was so different to how I thought he was going to be. He was really rough and tumble with them. He was really stupid with them and would muck about with them so much. Um, because, really, Greg was, like, quite a... Um, cerebral character very introverted but with them he wasn't at all <laughs> they and brought it out of him yeah no they really <laughs> really did he was like i just never imagined myself as like a dad who would be like fighting children <laughs> you know like that like wrestling kids to the ground and yeah um play fights yeah but it's i don't know there's 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 ways you can look at it like I don't like to just like think of the lack. I think that that you know he they will get so much from knowing the kind of person that he was through. You know his creative endeavors were his his world. So yeah, I can see that, and I think also, I suppose you will just make him part of what's happening by talking about him and yeah, and we do we that. we talk about him all the time. And there'll be a song on the radio in the car and Dali will say, oh, dad would hate this song <laughs> or something like that. Or like seeing um, a film and they the, think, yeah, Greg would love this. And, and vocalising that and yeah. having him part of discussion. And I don't know what will happen in time. I think it's still so fresh. People, I don't know, I've not experienced people feeling uncomfortable that, with that. I know I've heard of lots of people saying, oh, no one wants to talk about the person after they've died because they don't feel they don't want to upset you I haven't experienced that yet no I think yeah I do think I was thinking about this this morning actually I do think that there's a shift in how we are educating ourselves to talk about grief and have those conversations and I think that whole sort of overhang of almost like Victorian era grieving and we don't think we I think we've learned that that doesn't really work and that that's not actually the way that it's not like a chronological thing of like this is how long we have the morning and then it's on to yeah. the next bit I think I would I read something really interesting recently that talked about how where our style of mourning in this country comes from and it was all to do with the first world war that beforehand we had we had certain structures in place like ceremony and ritual for 
for thinking about the dead and different ways of processing mm. it. But when the First World War happened, there was so much death. It was so like just generations wiped out in such a small amount of time. It, there was so much death that it was so inconceivable that we as a society just decided to kind of just blanket it and wow. just be like, right, we move on. We move on. We do the funeral and we move on. It can't just be the UK, though, that was happening. Yeah, I think Anywhere. so. But I definitely think different cultures have got yeah. different ways. I know even in somewhere as close as Ireland, they have very, very different rituals mm. for when people die, the funeral, the aftermath, how people are treated afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they've got different ways. But I know in, in Britain that things yeah. changed dramatically then. And, and I think it's really unhelpful for everybody. The, yeah, massively. And I think about the people in the in the pandemic that couldn't have funerals for people that died, and I, I don't know how, I don't know how you deal with that. No, I know because it's so, that ritual is so important. That coming together, the the stories, the the official goodbye, the not seeing the body again afterwards. There's like it's not closure, but there is a closure of sorts of like the end of that section. And then you move on to the next. But so to not have that yeah. is, it almost feels, you know, like when you go to sneeze yeah. and you lose it in your body and you're like, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's really uncomfortable. And I don't know, I think that grief will become like the next mental health. Yeah. Because I think that we've all come out of the pandemic and everyone is quite rightly, just kind of like, brilliant, <laughs> we're back. Everything, yeah. we can get back to normal. But I think the the damage that has been done psychically on us will take a couple of years to come out. 100%. I think you're And I right. think that maybe in a couple of years, we will start to see the impact that that's had on us. It's huge. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think we're only really just starting to reflect a little bit, aren't we? I, mean, yeah. I mean, remember just the other day I was having a conversation with someone and they mentioned about clapping for the you know NHS oh on us, and I just was on that oh my gosh that was I used to cry every time yeah, and I'd see absolutely. my neighbours and just all this stuff that we were doing when we couldn't do so many other things and I totally agree with you about the funerals and I know that with um with John we were we always felt really glad that we were actually able to have a funeral for him and we could all be together and actually do those things because it happened in a gap between lockdown which is a, you know I was petrified that Greg would die in in one of the lockdowns. Well, obviously as well, he must have been so vulnerable to COVID. Yeah, we didn't... Um, well, Greg was told he would die. If he caught it, he would die. Because the um, the cancer that he had had spread to his lungs, his lungs were massively um, compromised and they had been really blunt with him. So we, we did six months shielding, all four of us, which was intense. Wow, that is intense. Very, very intense. So we missed all the um, queuing in supermarkets... I never even saw that, that, that we just didn't leave our house. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. And how did you, because your girls by that point are old enough to start to have an understanding of what's happening with their school friends and this kind of thing. So how are they, how are they feeling about all that? And how were you talking to them about everything that was going on? We were, it was really difficult actually, because they were starting to understand, like Dali had asked, what's wrong with dad? So when did that start, do you think? Oh God, must when she was in the era, so maybe when she was about five, was saying, when is dad going to get better? And we had to kind of say, well, he's he's not going to get better, but, you know, he's he can do this with you now. Um, it's very hard to kind of where to draw the line with that. And, yeah. um, and also, presumably for you, that's a conversation you knew was going to happen at some point, but... Yeah, we I talked about what cancer is, and that's a really hard conversation oh, yes. because it's you're saying it's not contagious, it's not something you can catch, it's just something that inside your body goes wrong, and that's that's fucking terrifying yeah, to a is. child. Oh, how do you catch it? It's quite how, terrifying how do you, to an adult. Yeah, how do you get it? Oh, it just happens. Yeah, like even yeah. So I was saying, I was like, that's just that's terrifying. <laughs> terrifying to me oh it just happens um yeah so those those conversations started and then as greg was getting more and more ill it it just became harder and harder with the girls to the point where when greg went to hospice in the end when he he very suddenly became ill and we thought initially that maybe he was going to the hospice just to get some pain um, sorted out and a bit of respite so he could just chill out there. And then when he got there, they were like, no, he's, um, no, this is it. He's like, he's got weeks to live. And that really did come out of the blue. And so it was a big thing. And then obviously we were then taking the girls to the hospice and, and I remember the first time we walked in, the first time I took them, they, they had um, they had wheeled this woman who must have been in her 90s by the looks of her, out into reception and they were reading her her last rites 
in reception. Oh, welcome to the hospital. Yeah, and obviously kids, what's going on? What's this? And I was like, oh, just, you know, as an adult, it was, it was quite affronting yeah, it's quite to, startling, to walk it? into. Also, it's an intimate thing and you suddenly feel like yeah. you're part of something and, quite um, personal. So I was trying to explain, like, my, my thinking has always been with the girls, which is if they ask a question, you answer it. You answer it yeah. truthfully. You don't try to deflect it. So I was trying to explain that and, um, and then having to tell them that Greg was going to die uh, is, is the worst thing I've ever done. Well, I didn't, I, do you know what? I didn't even do it. it Greg did. But I, was wit- I witnessed it and it's the worst thing I have ever seen. I mean, I think that's... He always said, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm afraid to leave them. F- f- like, he was like, they are the problem. And do you know what? I um, I, I found on his uh, computer after he died, he had written a book of poetry um, in the past couple of years that was published, and he had started writing for the second one. And he had written a poem that was about the girls called Tuck Away the Brightness. And he never told me about it. And it basically was him saying, put me away. Like, don't, I, like, try not to get close to me because I'm, I won't be here for you. Um, yeah, and that's like, that was his, he could deal with anything except for the girls. That was like his... Achilles here with all of it, as it would be if it was me. Like, yeah, that's your first, what's the your first thought, thought, isn't it? That, like, I thought everyone else will be okay. It, well, everyone else will get on, but yeah, the thought of like not seeing your children grow up and having to say goodbye to them, I think that was what I just thought. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm going to have to watch that. I'm going to have to watch him say goodbye to his, our children. Oh, Stacey, I'm so sorry. Oh, God, I don't... I'm so sorry. <sighs> You're right, though, and actually, the, the thing is, they actually will be completely okay because they're surrounded by amazing, loving family and and, and com, com, like conversations, and they, they won't have anything to fear about it. And the, the sad thing about that poem is not... It's, it's not really what he's saying to them. It was actually him trying to protect himself, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. it's not true. You can't really do that. You can't really say, you can't do like, I'm only going to be 70% of a parent. Like, that's yeah. just not how it works. Yeah. You don't actually have, that decision is actually not ours to make. We don't actually even have own ownership of that. Yeah. I mean, if if everything worked like that, then every time you're worried about your kids or, to be honest with you, for a moment you realise the enormity of the bond you have with your kids, you'd say, oh my goodness, can I put half of this back? Please? It's too much. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's so, it feels it's not, like being... It's not a true thing. It feels like walking around with your heart outside your exactly. body. Exactly. And then you suddenly think, oh my God, do my parents still feel like this about me? Is this something that we're... Why did nobody warn you? This is agony, you know? Yeah. Like, but the truth is that those girls don't... That's not actually what, uh, what they're left with, actually. They're left with... I, I do believe... I hope this doesn't sound too trite, but I believe so much in sharing the love that it just doesn't die. The love continues. It's just around them. And actually, they'll probably always have a very magical place that they feel their dad is always going to be because he'll he'll sort of be around them. Do you know what I mean? Like people who've lost a parent early on always talk about that, like like as if they feel like there's certain times in their life where they're there again, probably in a closer way than a lot of our other relatives, actually. And there'll probably be things they confess 
that they feel they're just sharing with him because that's what you do don't you you sort of have those silent communications mm. where the where the love goes yeah I, and uh, I I feel like I'm my my focus at this moment is is on them and just trying to trying to solidify us as a three um and how and the dynamics of that I mean they are both pretty feisty characters (laughs) both of them are real feisty girls um big big personalities and it's so it's kind of like it feels at the moment we're just all trying to find find ourselves yeah and where we all fit with each other as a three and how and and at times it's really fucking messy (laughs) It's it's just really like grinding up against each other and wanting wanting each other desperately wanting each other and then rejecting each other and it's yeah. it's messy it, well you can take you can share things with a, like your close nearest and dearest and where you just can't with other people yeah and I, and it's that thing of like yeah you know when kids are, are beautiful with other people and they come back and they just are awful and, yes I recognize and, yeah <laughs> and, and people go oh it's because you're their safe space you're like mm. brilliant Good. Yeah, lucky me. Oh yeah, good, brilliant. So I just see this then, do yeah. I? And I, it's like that times a thousand because, yeah. like, I they know that like so all of their worries come out to me, and it's to have to hold those, yeah, is and to kind of mirror to them that that I'm okay, that they're okay, that we are going to be okay, whilst possibly at the time maybe falling apart a bit myself is um yeah it's uh, where does the support come where's the like what are the things around for well, you that help I, you i have um a really great family who live nearby my my family and greg's family live really really close to me and i'm really close with greg's all of greg's family as well which is great they're mm. really everyone's really involved with the girls i've got an exceptional group of close friends and also um i've built an a community on social media, which has helped me no end. So weird, like the things, like we were talking about your kitchen disco earlier, about like how weird that something small that you did has turned into this tour. And it also goes into something so like close to the heart, actually. I felt like an affection for the kitchen disco thing was like separate to anything I've ever done in my life. Like it ended up crossing into like my day job, but it didn't come from that place. And I think that community thing of just the sort of purity of the exchange, like when I needed something and they needed something and we just did it together. So I think the fact that you write about stuff and have found people online is absolutely brilliant. I think that's one of the sides of social media that's so fantastic because it can be so isolating otherwise. And Absolutely. And I um, I did a TED talk a couple of years ago that was specifically about that, about yeah. how I didn't, I didn't even used to have social media accounts. And then I just felt this draw. I felt like I was searching the internet for voices like mine or hit to see back emotions that I was feeling and yeah. I couldn't find I couldn't find anything so when you were going through the thing or well, the hospital visit or where, where does there so I'm just thinking and before you found it through the social media stuff is there was that what's the support that happens at the beginning like with that at the oh, hospital well, and stuff well, like well, that I think that was one of the that was one of the triggers was that we went to this one of the first things we did was that we went to this chemotherapy day where anyone who was new to treatment all went together. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, we were all sat round in this big room 
we must have been 30 years younger than everybody else. And everyone was talking about they want to live to see like their grandchildren start school. Right. And I was thinking, well, I've got to go home to like go and feed our um, our baby. <laughs> and everyone looked at us quite pityingly. Like the, they had cancer themselves, but they were looking at us and it was a bit like, oh, Oh, no, you're here. And what do you do with the anger? Because that would make me really angry, if I'm honest. I just, I, like to I feel... just felt very I, I felt very isolated and alone. And especially, you know, with all my friends, my peers, suddenly I was very, not because of anything that they were doing, but it, I was the first person to go through something like that. Maybe if you're the first person to have a baby in a group, you might feel like, I don't know what to do. But I, what I found that... I was looking for voices, looking for community, and there's not that much. And so I started writing really as a coping mechanism. It really was just this thing that I didn't even control. Yeah, it it yeah. was just this need to get this stuff out. And then I started sharing it online. Do you know what? I can't even really remember why I did it. I think it could have been... When I was with Greg and Chemo, which was every fortnight, I think I used to do a post every fortnight because he'd be sat and he'd be out of it for five hours and I'd be sat alone like with nothing to do because he was just kind of out of it. And I think it was just this feeling of like, I'm so alone here. Like I'm in the middle of this chemo ward for five hours. Yeah. And it was almost like that feeling of I need to not feel alone. Yeah, definitely. And like kind of saying, well, like, this is what I'm feeling. And then people started to respond. And then it it kind of grew quite organically. Yeah. And I realised that I've, I've n never been a person to shy away from being the first person to do something. I'm always quite happy to put my hand up first and like... That's a great take, quality. Take the hit for other people. Oh my goodness. Yeah. If you go out together, that yeah. sounds like a brilliant person to buddy up with. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've definitely... Any volunteers in the audience, Stacey? Oh Harris no. That, do you know really? what? No, that is me. That is 100% me. But I used to be like that at school. It, it was that thing of like, you know, that awkward thing if a teacher asks a question and you can see everyone going, oh my God, like looking down the floor. I would think... Oh God, I'll put my hand up. Really? Like, yeah. Wow. And I think I felt a bit like that about this, which is like, okay, I can see that other people feel like this. So if I just say this, yeah, this like weird thought that I've had or these feelings that I'm having, then actually maybe it might give people, they'll know that they're not wrong or alone yeah. or permission to actually vocalise what their feeling is. And that is, that is what happened. And then this this community has grown. And for me, that's been an enormous support. That's huge. And I've met really great, very real friends. I think social media gets quite a bad rap for, for things like that, of it being very vacuous. No, there's a whole very, side of it. Very superficial, brilliant. which definitely exists. Absolutely. But but there's this other side, especially, I mean, I'm I'm part of a very particular community there of like a cancer community, a grief community. <clears throat> and 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 there are some incredible people, incredible people. Well, just look at Deborah James at the moment. I yeah. know you know her, don't you? Yeah, well yeah. I was uh, yeah, she she came around last year and and spoke to me and uh and I was thinking about her with 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 you as well because I know I knew that you two knew each other, but yeah. also I was thinking about how amazing how how incredibly it's changed the face of 
bowel cancer awareness and fundraising, which because I saw a post you'd put up years ago now talking about, you know, how there's like the sort of acceptable pink fluffy side of cancer fundraising and that then there's people who leave all their money in their will to donkey sanctuary, which don't get me wrong. You know, I want donkeys love, to be happy yeah. too. Love a donkey. <laughs> love a donkey. But, but they get 27 million yes. a year, you're saying, yeah. which is from legacy from alone. Legacy, which is astonishing. Aston- yeah. That's literally people, can you put it in my di- in my will? In my will, yeah. All to donkeys, please. And if you think about, I think it's uh, bowel cancer. This is a couple of years ago from what I remember yeah. when I did that research. I think uh, bowel cancer got 8 million. Yeah. In, is- out of everything. That's not just legacy. So Yeah. And the way to help to make cancer you know manageable is money research money research money and also early detection yes uh if and that only comes from people having these kind of conversations exactly well that's why what deborah's done with her social media account has been literally dressing herself as (laughs) as a walking dancing thing (laughs) on the train yeah on the train yeah i mean and that's it is about especially those kind of cancers where people don't like they don't like talking about it or they mm. don't like they don't like uh, like even like going to a doctor's mm. and they've se- the doctors have seen it all they've seen it all they they don't care and um and that's the thing it's like this it is a life or death situation if you catch it early enough i think it's 97% of people um can be cured so why do they not pick up on it with great i think uh, I think a lot of people don't go for embarrassment reasons. Definitely, yeah. I think, I think, uh, I can't talk, I don't know. You know, why don't people go for smear tests? Yeah. Li- it blows my mind. We but, are still pretty bad about all those. We're quite prudish, still, aren't we, about a lot yeah, of these things? Yeah, and it's... Getting better, but... And it's that thing of like, yeah, no, smear tests are not, you know, they're not great. It's not a barrel of laughs. But, you know, when I was sat, I remember being sat in the chemo ward and, it, you know, it can be quite harrowing to sit in those places and see how people have bad reactions to drugs as well. And I remember thinking, like, a colonoscopy is better than this. <laughs> like, it really, really is. Like, Yeah. Um, and with one, one in two of us getting can- having a cancer diagnosis in our lifetime, I mean, it's, that's an astronomical Isn't number. Isn't it just? And if there's... You know, if it's one in two, then there's one in two of us that will have to care for somebody with cancer. So that's all of us. That ticks all the boxes of all the humans. Wow. Yeah, it's a a depressing number. Well, it's pretty stark, isn't it? It's pretty stark. But I guess um, on on the whole, things are improving, though, for most people. As you say, early detection is not the death sentence it used to be for for the majority so that's a positive that's probably as a result of you know the the research and the and checking your symptoms and all these kind of things so there will definitely be people from from reading the things you've put out from reading what greg's put out what deborah's put out that will have it will have actually saved lives i have actually i have actually had people message me saying i've been to the doctors because of um because of what you've said and i've got checked out and i did have cancer and 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 it's being treated, and that it wasn't too late. Amazing. Which is, I mean, that's just enormous. It is. That's an enormous thing. It is. It is. So when you through your social media and the commun- this community, did you manage to find people going through the same thing? Have you found the other young families? Yeah, I have. Um, 
Yeah, I found lots and lots of different people, actually. And I found one person in particular who, not through social media, but through... Um, there's a company, what, a charity called Maggie, Maggie's? Oh, I know do, Maggie's. Oh, do you? Yeah, my mum's a patron, actually. Oh, my God, yeah. is she? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Maggie's in Southampton, which is where we live, um, has only recently opened. And I, I think I was one of the first people through the door. And they had said, again, it was like a lot of old people there. And I'd said, did you have any younger people? And um, they were like, actually, someone's just walked through the door who has a son who's the same age as Darling. And we exchanged numbers. And it was a bit like having a blind date <laughs> where we yeah. were giving each other's numbers. And it was a bit like, do we message? Like, how yeah. do we message? What do we say? I don't know what to say to this. And we started we started texting. Then we uh, moved to WhatsApp. That means it's serious. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. And, um, and then we started doing voice notes to each other. And then we're like, shall we meet? Yeah, if you're doing voice it, notes, yeah, you it was, should meet. It was like it was like a date, <laughs> and so her husband Sam had um, cancer as well, and they, Greg and Sam, were kind of like dying at the same time, and so me and Josie were just each other's constant, and we would we would speak every single day for months while they were in the active process of dying, and we were each other's total support and I I think everyone should have a Josie yeah <laughs> I mean what are the things Just, do you think that that people wouldn't understand about that situation because people would obviously oh try god and... oh if I if I go back and I've never listened I'd, I'd like to do that actually go back and listen to our voice notes to each other these rambling voice notes like her being at the hospice like tucked up in a chair um there were a lot of laughs we joked a lot. That's about, we had really dark humour, really dark humour. Um, we we talked about like the intricacies of like like the practicalities of what was going on physically. And Sam actually died a little bit before Greg. And then it was weird because it shifted a bit. Because I was like, oh no, is she going to want to talk to me anymore? It, it's it's weird. This I've never had a relationship like that before. Um, and we are still really, really great friends and we go for spa days together. Now. I'm really glad that you have each other, you know, because I think that that's, as you say, everybody having a Josie when you're going through those things, that just that shorthand of all the stuff that... And you don't you have know. to explain anything. Exactly. You don't have... And, um, uh, oh God, I don't think she will mind me telling this story. She, I mean, th- again, this is stuff that nobody would know. She was having um, Sam... Sam's ashes were put into a firework. Oh wow! That his him her and her their family were going down to a beach in Cornwall to um, let off, uh, cool. and that's yeah they thought that Sam would love that. And she was having to measure out the ashes because they had to be a certain amount to put them in to send them off to be put into this firework. Okay. She videoed herself doing it because she was so. She was just like, this is the maddest thing I've ever had to do and I can't do it alone in my kitchen, so I'm going to prop you up here. I'm going to video myself putting Sam's ashes into this bag, like on my scales that I make cakes with. And I'm going to um, video it and send it to you. And then like it kind of went over her and she was like, oh, I don't know what to do, oh my God. And I was like, this doesn't ha- this shit doesn't happen to other people. <laughs> this is like such a thing that goes on in the background. Yeah. But it's also, as you say, it's like there's actually, 
I think I saw recently you'd put a thing up saying, look, can people just send me like funny things around funerals and stuff? Because sometimes oh, things do God. happen. And it made me think, in your story with Josie, made me think about when my granny, Sybil Baxter, when she died. <laughs> and we um, we just, we were putting uh, granny's ashes in an extra rose bush where my granddad also is. Um, but nobody had thought how to put the ashes in the ground. So at first someone tried to do like a handful and they just went everywhere. And then they're like, no, we need something. And the only thing we could find in her house that was the right size was an ice cream scoop. So we literally put my granny into the ground with an ice cream scoop. Which I still can't quite work out if that's like super disrespectful. No, I think it's great. I I think it's great. (laughs) Yeah, but we were all finding it quite funny. But obviously, though, there's... I suppose also someone dying in their 90s, like my granny, there's like, there's not really tragedy around that. So I think the fact that you can find humour in it is actually really, really healthy. Like, I'm sure I'd be the the same. I must say that the 12 hours before Greg actually died, when we kind of all came together, everyone was at his parents' house and there was kind of like this vigil going on where one of us would be up with Greg and then the rest of everyone else was downstairs. And I have... I haven't laughed that hard in years. My sister, which on paper that sounds insane, but me and my sister-in-law were in the kitchen and she was telling me stories and I was actually, I'd have stand with my legs crossed because I was going to wet. I was crying with laughter. But do you think there's a kind of giddiness as well from yes. just the sort of... Yes. I don't know how to even articulate it, but it's almost like... When when you're not trying to do that uphill, you know, the swimming against the tide all the time and all the the constant treatments and things, you finally got this bit where it's like just a sort of acceptance, I suppose, but also, I don't know. Like, like as I, it's not comparable, but the day before John died was like a really lovely day. We were all just round the bed and we were laughing and sometimes crying and then laughing again, listening to music, chatting. And I'm actually really glad we had that. It was really nice to be together. I, yeah, like that. and I think that is what people also don't know about death is that there is a lot of laughter as well. Um, it, yeah, there was lots of like so many inappropriate jokes, so <laughs> many dark inappropriate jokes that if you were to tell someone what was happening, like on Greg's deathbed, they would just be like, oh, that's horrendous. And is that in keeping with how Greg Oh, God, abso- absolutely. And he, <laughs> and he was actually part of some of those jokes. Really? <laughs> when um, him and his brother had, um, Aaron had, uh, this is this is maybe a couple of weeks, but he was at in-home hospice, end-of-life care um, at home. And they were talking about playing a prank on their mum and dad by putting a white sheet over Greg and like pretending he died already. And that (laughs) (laughs) then he would kind of like make a noise. (laughs) Oh my God. But that was Greg's humour as well. Their family's humour is exceptionally unique and dark. (laughs) I've got much worse stories than that. But yeah, and I think it just pierces that bubble. You know, it's so intense and it's so, it's so much. It's so big and so much. And I think to to burst that bubble and inject that bit of laughter is really necessary. And I think, do you know what? I've never had so many comments as when I asked for funny grief and death stories. Yeah. had so many mess not only people giving examples but people messaging saying i am crying laughing i'm on the train and i'm in hysterics yeah someone my husband's just come upstairs to see what i'm laughing about because i'm i'm just in fits yeah and i think there is it's that 
it's the release, isn't it? That's of so like, true. Like popping that bubble of just like it's so the tension of it all. Yeah, just letting some of it out, especially if the person who's unwell has got a really good sense of humour. Like, let's, yeah. let's make that part of it because if it's yeah. part of your life, then having it be part of your death is. And I was I was told actually um, by someone I know. Anna Lyons, who is um, a death doula. She's part of Life, Death, Whatever. I don't know if you've come across them. But she she was kind of counselling me through the um, Greg's death, really. And she said to me, people are in death as they are in life. Right? Yeah. They, they Who they are, their character, their personality, that is who they will be in death. And I think I was... I thought that maybe... Me and like Greg didn't ever want to talk about his death, or even though he could joke about it in those in those moments, he didn't want to really talk about it seriously. And I wondered if we would, I think. And everyone around me was like, "You need to really manage your expectations about that, about having that kind of you know you see in yeah. films of like you know the heart to heart that that kind of the epiphany moment of like you get this one final moment." And I think. I really wanted that, but that wasn't who Greg was, and 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 no, I never got it. So, did you ever want to talk, ever have conversations about the next bit, or would that be just shut down a bit? Yeah, we never, we never spoke about that. It's exactly the same as my stepdad. Funny enough, really, really frustrated my mum as well. Yeah, she starts to talk about it. He goes, "No, yeah, we're not doing that." And that was, and also that person is, you know, that person wins. Because they're they're the one that's ill. They're the one who's going to die. So that sets the tone. But what I found, you know, and I I absolutely respect that, and that's that's how Greg wanted to deal with it. But there's a lot of processing for me because yeah. I never, I will never get to have those conversations now. That's gone. And um, I mean, it wasn't even any kind of big. I don't know. People talk, you know, you see those those scenes. It's not like I, there was any big revelations or big big anything, but I think the fact that he never wanted to talk about the fact that he was going to die. When you're a partnership, when you're kind of in life together and you're the partner of children, I kind of felt a bit like, no, you you really do need to talk to me about this because I'm your partner. Yeah. Like I'm we're in this together yeah. and for you to not talk to me about it kind of leaves me stranded over here. And that's hard and that was hard and and still is hard that you know things like what did he want for the children? Um what you know I almost wanted a bit of life advice from him of like what do you or or ask like what were the best moments? of your life what was, was what was your best moment of our relationship or you know just maybe sounds weird but like a summary of like yeah tell me what you thought about your life like, yeah and like, like what's important is it important to you that I continue you know what what do, what themes you want to make sure I make part of yeah our kids lives yeah but maybe he just trusted you he well knew he right did person. well I he did actually have a conversation with his brother like that and I in, and I said to him afterwards, oh, you had a, you know, I heard you had a big conversation. And he was like, yeah, it was really good. It's, you know, quite emotional, but good. And I said, oh, is mine coming soon? And he just went, oh, you'll be fine. And I can take it two ways. <laughs> there's two ways. Like, one, there's like, there's 
that's great trust in and belief in me of like, you'll be fine. I don't need to say anything to you because you will just be fine. But then there's another part of me which is like, I want something a bit more. Like yeah. I want I want to hear a bit more about what you think because like you're my person. Maybe it's just too much to put into words. Yeah. Then. And do you know what? It was a big reality check about what people think. Like you were saying earlier that you need to tell people what you think when you're alive and healthy. That's the time to talk to people about what you feel. And, you know, bucket lists are most certainly for the healthy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. not for people that have been diagnosed with cancer. That They're not for them, really. No, no, Because no. people are just like, well, no, I'm too too busy at the hospital, actually, to be uh, climbing up mountains. Yeah. Or throwing myself out of planes. Yeah. But then maybe as well the... I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about the term bucket list anyway. I've always found it a bit, something about it that doesn't quite sit with me. But I do, you suppose, mean it, do you mean the words or, yeah. the, or the actual thing itself? I suppose the sort of things to do before you die is just not quite how my brain works. But, but I do think that possibly the spirit of it, as in just that sort of seize the moment and go for things, that might pass, that might be what your girls take as the thing, you know. They'll probably have that as part of their yeah. fabric. Well, well, something that happened with me is that um, the, one of the things that Greg said that he regretted um, not doing in his life was, he said, I always wish that I'd ignored our record label and dressed like Mark Bolan. <laughs> Because he used to in the early in the early days before delays were delays they were in a the band was called Idaru. I love that though that was the thing and like, should have kept the Mark Bowen yeah well he Greg honestly the pictures of him he would wear eyeliner bit back comb his hair he'd wear like um, leopard print trousers silver shirts like proper glam rock wow I bet he looked the right vision oh no he was he was hot and and uh, but I think Rough Trade were just like no. <laughs> is not marketable in this like 2004 indie scene no they weren't that wasn't the time for that but that no. would have, i would have definitely been like who's that guy that's yeah just exactly like. and he was just like oh why didn't i just i just wish i just kept on dressing up like mark bolan and that really got to me and i saw this picture of mark bolan that had these incredible silver boots and i was like i'm gonna go and buy some really big 70s platform silver boots and that became this this mantra. And I wrote about it publicly about buying some silver boots and that that was going to kind of, that I need to think about that as I go through life about it's not, you know, you must wear the silver boots. Yes. And I can't tell you of how many people now send me photographs of them wearing silver boots. They, there was this group of women who I didn't know who all seemed to get together and they had this mantra between them of like wear the silver boots and they sent me pictures of them on a girl's holiday in Ibiza one of them learnt to skateboard one of them learnt the piano and they were like this is us living wearing the silver boots and I was like yes this is I prefer wearing the silver boots to the bucket list that to me is like a yeah it well it's that thing of like just get on and do it. Just get on and do it. Exactly. Just it's not like ticking like these big big things off a list. Like I, I actually ran a um, an art project that was like this big supper club of strangers. And um, everyone had to... So no one knew each other at this dinner table. And it was all about what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to wear the silver boots? 
And everyone thought it was going to be these big things. And the first thing on my list was um, I really wanted to hold a live chick. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. No, I've done it now. I haven't done that. Oh, no, you must. Is it the softest thing you've ever... It's just, it's incredible. It taps into something quite primal in you. It's it's a very beautiful thing. You must do it. But I was like, it doesn't have to be these big things. It's like, what would delight your heart? What would, you know, and so for me, it was wearing these ridiculous boots um, and holding a chick. Did you do them at the same time? I don't know if it was the same time. What a great In my head it is. What a great photo. That would have been. <laughs> it is. That's a promo shot for something. That's a band. That's an album cover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crouching down the boots and the chick. The vulnerability and the strength all at once. Tender yet tough. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, going back to the, the girls. Um, when you're parenting your way through the illness and death and grief how do you how do you go about managing their behavior like and setting a sort of boundary for where the line is for like well that's so of course you can act out on this but you have to kind of be mindful of that yeah or is that not something that I don't know oh no that is that's something that's at the forefront of my mind constantly like really all the time because there's it, it's this very changeable, very fine line that moves daily depending on um, what's going on with them emotionally. You know, giving them leeway in some ways because their dad's just died and they're young and they don't know what's going on. They're trying to process it. But also giving them like a line which is like, no, you can't cross that because that's just not okay. And that is a really, it's really fluid. And you have to, I find that I'm, I go on my intu- like a mother's intuition of like trying to like see how they are that day, see things that have gone on at school. They're both very different as well. Dali's very cerebral like her dad. She is older so she can talk about stuff more. So at night time she will get, that's when it all comes out with her. Bay is six, so she will do things like lose the plot because I've given her the wrong cup still. A bit like a toddler. It's almost like a regression. Yeah. Um, so I have to really judge it. I don't get it right all the time at all. I, I really don't think I get it right. But um, there are... It probably isn't really a right and wrong. I think the intuition yeah, thing is the right thing. I think thing. there's... Um, like, I have given them... There's some things that I've I've definitely become I definitely have become a more slack parent well, well slack maybe a less it's really hard when something so cataclysmic has happened because you are a bit like oh well it doesn't matter yeah bed do you know what bedtime doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you go to bed half an hour later an hour later so it's hard to kind of get back into that way of thinking yeah. and I have let them uh we do do a thing where when they have emotions that are really, like with Dali, it's upset, with Bay, it's anger. And we do do a thing where I say to them, we can go in your bedroom and you are allowed to swear in this room and you're allowed to punch these pillows and you can smash them against a wall and you're allowed to scream swear words, but just in this room. And um, they love it. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love I it. That's quite it's like good release. Yeah, you can see in their eyes, and it is. And oh, but also, like, 
there is a release from saying swear words, like for adults. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And for them, also for them, it's like that naughty thing of like, oh my God, we're doing something like really naughty here. And like that physicality of punching and getting that energy out. And Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, last night with my six-year-old, he noticed a fridge magnet that my mum had given us that says, it says fuck, but the U is like an asterisk. Yeah. So he went, what does that say? And I said, what do you think it said? And he went, am I allowed to say it? I said, yeah. So he said oh, it. he and knew. I went, and I went, Jess, I'm going to say something. Don't, like, forget I said it afterwards, but sometimes swearing is quite good fun. And he went, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've told me that before. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, oh, I'm really, uh, yeah, <laughs> obviously a very filtered person. <laughs> and I always do that with them, um, repeating myself, thinking it's a golden nugget yeah. of wisdom. <laughs> Listening, kids, because yeah, uh, you're going to want to hear this. I'm only going to say this once yeah. or maybe 13 times. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I think that's actually the whole thing of, of like managing that angle like that is actually really helpful. We're, we're, again, there's more conversations now about having letting kids have that space for their emotions, and they're not even going to, as you say, understand half of what they're feeling or why they're feeling it. And that thing of getting angry about the cup, yeah, you know that like probably happens with you sometimes with something that irrational. We just oh, think this hugely. has made me feel something, and I don't even. Yeah, I I try um, to let them feel all their feelings. And say to them, all of these feelings are okay. Like, anger is okay. Yeah. Being jealous of other people is okay. Like, it's it's all just feelings. There's nothing wrong with any of them. Um, That's hard, though. It's really hard to kind of not try, especially as the only parent, of, yeah. like, really trying to manage that. Let them feel it. Let them be everything that they want to be through this. Also, for you, that's exhausting if you yeah, haven't got your own yeah. space. Like, okay, now, now where's my room where I can punch the pillow and swear? Yeah. Or maybe you're doing it with them sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes yeah. we do shouting. Sometimes we do it in the car as well. We will, we will shout swear words in the car. That's, the car's a great that's place well. for all sorts of things. Yeah. Shouting. But also there's no eye contact. Everybody's just in there. So you can just go, ah. It's quite good for that, isn't it's it? It's good for talking as well because yeah, you're not intense. looking at each other. Exactly. So Dali will sometimes like bring up big conversations in the car. Yes. And it's a good place to be good able to place. chat without actually having to see each other's reaction. Yeah. And going back to you, because I was thinking about the fact that, so obviously you had your fashion lecturing and is fashion still part of your life at all? Or is that, do you feel like that chapter is sort of... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Obviously know. it seems like, you know, you're keeping very busy and there's all these new new things that have come out of your writing in this yes. new community so I'm writing a book so I did I'm very actu- glad to hear that yeah I did actually always want to be an author when I was younger everyone assumed I would be a writer and then and then I became interested in fashion I went off in a totally different tangent so no one who's close to me is surprised that I'm writing a book but so I'm I'm that's that's me wearing my silver boots of like say, doing like doing yeah. something that what I is, really want to book? do. The book is going to be a really really honest account of what what it looks like of what death looks like and what grief looks like. Cuz I think that what I found is I wanted to kind of I wanted to like to find these voices. And what I found in the community that I built was that people will talk a lot in like private about stuff, but no one talks about things openly. Mm. So you almost have to go through these things and they could be very, very, very weird things that happen. 
and you can feel very alone. And I've had so many people say that to me, like, I'm so glad you said that because now I don't feel embarrassed about that. And so I would like to write a book which is about me. It's not a book about Greg, it's about me, about all the very weird, probably embarrassing, crazy things that I've thought and felt during my experience of living with someone who's going to die and then afterwards of like what grief really looks like. So I think it's going to be like quite a brutal book, but also a very funny book and a very, very honest book. I think think the book will be like the ultimate me putting my hand up first. Yeah. And like saying to people, this is, this is like, this is, this is me. Yeah. And, and maybe you've thought some of these things as well. That's going to be invaluable. That's definitely going to be. I hope so. I hope, I hope that it can be that it could just make people feel less alone. That's really my goal with the whole thing is to make people feel less alone. Yeah. Because I imagine, well, that's, that's in itself is worth so much. And I, I hope this isn't a really overly direct question, but I was just trying to think how I'd feel if I was going through what you've been through. And I was thinking that, did you ever really, like, I know you can know someone's going to die because you've been told that that's what's going to happen and that's what the illness means, but is there ever a point where you really get your head around it? Like in real, real life? Or I don't know if I really did, actually. I was the one... Out of all of us, in our inner sanctum, I was the one who knew all the stuff. I knew all, like, I was the one that the doctor spoke to. Um, I was working with different charities, so, like, I, and I knew all these people who had already died of cancer, as in, like, in the, in the cancer community. And that was really hard, to have all these people that you make friends with die. It, it's really hard. So I knew the reality, but at the same time, there is this very obscure nature to death, which is like, okay, I, you know, I could I could talk about it till the cows come home of like, yeah, Greg will die, Greg will die. He's probably got like a 7% chance of getting to five years. But the reality of that is so abstract to to feel like they're just not going, they're just going to be gone and that's that. And it was only, I think even towards the end, even then, I just don't think I really understood the reality of what that meant and and you know what I think it's so Greg died last September September 2021 and I feel like it's only now that I'm starting to really understand it I think the first six months after he died was shock and and that in itself shocked me because I was like how could I be shocked and I felt very numb, like I didn't cry. Like, like for me to cry talking about it now with you is actually weird because when I've been talking about it, I don't cry. And I think that's a shock. That's the numb of like, it's almost like you're telling a story. Yeah. But I think as that shock dissolves and the, the truth is underneath, the, like the reality, and you start to understand of like, oh yeah, they're dead. You're never going to see them again. Like that... I think that's starting to come out now. Yeah, I was talking to my mum yesterday. I said, I was seeing you today and I said, is there anything you would pass on? Like, what would be your, you know, what would you want her to know about where she's now nearly two years since John died? And some of the things you've said are so similar to the things she said about, especially that thing of um, when it's your person, 
you know who you are because you see yourself reflected back from them. Yeah. And when that's gone, you, you've lost your reflection of yourself. I, I think. Do you know what? That's a really good point. I, I actually have found that possibly the hardest because I think I had five years from like diagnosis to death to really try and process that Greg was going to die and what that would mean for him or as like a th- as a thing in itself, as a bubble. What I didn't have any understanding of, of what it would mean for me. I mean, yeah, obviously like practical yeah. stuff of like having to be a solo parent, I'm going to have to do everything. Like I got that, but I didn't understand that it would, it would really affect my confidence and that it would affect how I thought of myself or who I thought I was and that I wouldn't understand who I was anymore. I was really confused by that at like the age of 42, feeling like, you know, me and Greg were always very independent of each other as well. And we we had our own things going on. It wasn't like we were intertwined or enmeshed with each other. But to feel like you suddenly don't know who you are or where you fit in or what you think about anything anymore is, that's really shocked me. Yeah, I can totally understand that, that the absence of that, that reflection. I totally is that head. is that how your mum felt? Yeah, and so I said to her, so she's now nearly two years on, and I said, what would you pass on? I'm not going to, I can't really dress, it's not like super jolly. She said, um, she said, oh, don't, don't expect to feel better, <laughs> which I thought was, um, I couldn't really dress that one up. And she said, you get past the sort of jagged teeth of the first bit of grief and then you've just got the sort of steady, the steady drum of, the, of yeah. the morning. And she yeah. said, don't expect people to keep in step with you. They, yeah. they, they can't, they can't keep in step with you. So yeah. I'm, I, I'm sorry, it wasn't a bit more... Um, a bit more uplifting. Uplift, yeah. But that's what she said. But I thought, um, I thought maybe there's a, a value in it because I think there sp- is. expecting to feel better is such a... We're still caught up with it, like it being a sort of really chronological, yeah, you know, path to it. And actually, that doesn't really work like that. A bit like you were saying with the up and down, the good days and the bad days. And I think if you just know that and turn in your back and float with some of it and be mm. be kind with yourself. I have heard actually, I've heard that already that everyone I've ever spoken to has has said almost unanimously, uh, year two is harder than year one. Oh. And I was like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Like, I'm just kind of done with, with, I'm just, I I think it's not that I don't want to grieve because I think there's actually a loveliness about grieving because it's ultimately love. It's ultimately love. Yeah. Grief is just the flip side of the same coin. So there is a loveliness in grieving, but it's so fucking draining and it's, it can be so boring to always feel just like exhausted and your head's a bit of a mess and... So when I heard that, I was like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, well, maybe it's not true for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for trying to sweeten it up a bit. I think it just, yeah, I think I probably could have fallen in the trap of being like, once I get to a year, it's going to get better. But um, I'm sure it will, it will just, all, you know, I will always miss him. Yeah. There will never... There will never be a time when I don't wish that he here. was here. And that, and the, um, yeah, that will always be the case. It will always be sad that he died. Yeah, I think that's an acceptance that you, you, you get to, isn't it? Just that thing of like, it's always, as you say, it's always going to be sad. It will yeah. never be not yeah. sad. It just is a sad thing. Yeah, it just is. Um, but what's the, 
what is the good thing about having young young children in your life when you're going through so much? What, what's the positive about raising them while you've got that oh, those heavy heavy boots? Energy, the energy that they bring, and my two are just like little firecrackers that they bring so much energy and laughs, like stupidity and fun, and that is a real motivation. Um, and I have a really big motivation to keep that for them. I don't want to be someone who cracks under the sadness of everything. I, I made myself a promise before Greg died that I wouldn't die with him because that would do nobody any good. Also, and do you ever feel like you sort of want to be your best version of yourself for him as well? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I I want... I really... L- I wrote about this in the eulogy, actually, that I gave its funeral. I loved who I was through his eyes. And I want to be, I want to carry on being that person. The things that he loved in me and saw in me. Yeah. And he was like my biggest cheerleader. He would always, um, if I was just talking, just having like nonsense imposter syndrome stuff he would just like shut it down totally and be like you are a writer you are an artist you are these like don't question yourself you just are just go and do them and so I I kind of I have his I think when you've lived with someone for so long you you just know what they would say so sometimes I will if I'm in a situation I will think to myself what would Greg say and I can hear I can hear him not you know, yeah. I can just hear what he would say to me. And it's normally, it's just like, just get on with it, Stace. <laughs> just, yeah. And I think that's what I try to do is like, I try to, and I and I especially want to do that for the girls because, you know, they've just started their life and they've been hit with a big blow that that was not their fault. And I feel like I need to give them a good life. I think that's a certainty. They will have a good life. But um, if you, if, if people are listening and they know someone that's going through the same thing, what's a good way they can support someone, do you think? Oh, um, first of all, definitely say something. People always say, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Even if you say to them, look, I don't know what to say, but I just wanted to say something. Um, that's a really, really good start because silence is a is speaks volumes silence in itself is is a statement so and I think that can that statement can be louder than others yeah the people that didn't contact me or didn't who people who I thought who would be there that weren't I think was the loudest like a siren going off to me yeah um I would say that not try to just don't try and fix anything there's nothing to fix. There's nothing to fix, but just to be like, I just want you to know that I'm here, that I'm going to continue to be here. I think that's the thing as well of like, at the beginning, it's like, ah, oh, there's a, I think there could be a little bit of grief tourism as well of like, it's quite a thing to kind of buzz around. Definitely. But then actually the real grieving comes when everyone disappears. That's when the real stuff happens and then people have moved on. Which, which is, is fair, you know, life does move on and especially if it's not people's direct lives, of course. So, um, but yeah, you know, check in at six months. Check, yeah. in a, check in at a year and be like, I'm really aware that like a lot of time has gone past and I just want to know how you're feeling, what you're thinking about. 
yeah, that's all good stuff, just checking in. And I think you're right about the saying something because I think, as you say, the thing of the people that don't say things or they, the silence is like, as you say, like the siren of just like, no, yeah. that's not, do you know that's not what, how we do Do you know this. one of the best things that people said to me? So I've got a really great core group of friends. And when, when all this began and um, I was telling them about it, they always used the term we. They were like, right, what are we going to do about this? What are, and it was like they were with me. They included themselves in the in the situation. Yeah. Because and I think that was so. And I try to do that with other people now, um, because I know it's so isolating and it's so lonely. Yeah. So for other people to be like, right, we're in this with you, and it's I'm going to refer to it as we we are a team and we are all moving forward with this together. Yeah. That was great. I really I really appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. No, I can see the value in that. And actually, those little subtle things make such a big difference, as yeah. you say, that togetherness. And, oh, what, you know, it's going to sound, you know, like, like I'm just being flippant, but honestly, I can, your girls are going to be so, so much more than fine. They're going to be, oh. they're going to be good, Stacey. Like, Thank you're you, a formidable so. person. <laughs> oh, honestly. And, you know, look, I never, I never met Greg. I, I feel like I must have done, but I know that I haven't because I, I would have remembered and I love some of the music the delays did and I know I spoke to Richard and the feeling and the delays had done some things yeah. together and our paths must have so nearly crossed so Probably, many times. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. And um when I was looking back through all his amazing artwork and his posts and your posts, the thing you get most of and I felt this the same way with my my mum and John, but at the centre of everything, all the concentric circles, there's the there's a love story of the two of you. That's what's right in the that's what's right in the centre of it all. And honestly, that that will carry your girls through everything because that that love it just emanates back out again. All those concentric circles, it's like it's the most powerful thing. So they're going to be fine. And thank you so much for talking to me. It's really lovely to sit and chat with you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. So thank <laughs> you for having me. Wow, what a conversation! Thank you so much to Stacey for coming over to mine and being so generous with her time and her experience and her honesty. I just I just thought it was really lovely and, yeah, profound, actually. And it was a really... One of those conversations that already stay with me. Uh, so thank you so much to her and thank you to you for listening. And I won't stick around too long now because I'm so bunged up, I feel like my cold is going to sound horrible in your ears. So I'm sorry about that. I just had a cold all week. Super dull, super dull. But there it is. Anyway, thank you so much as ever to listening. I have another lovely, lovely conversation ready for you next week. And in fact, I'm feeling pretty slick at the moment because I've got quite a few chats already recorded. I did four this week and uh, they've all been great. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to Stacey again. It's uh, every conversation that we have for the podcast is always, you know, people being very candid but when it's something that's so emotional I do feel especially appreciative of the um the time people are spending with me so thank you to everybody for being part of that this week and uh I hope I hope you're feeling okay virtual hug to us all and I'll see you next week have a good one Listen.
ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.